several things going on. Uh, David Smith, who many of y'all will know from uh, him serving interim here, David's uh, real job is not to go be interim pastor at places. It's, he's, the, he's our local Baptist Association director. And if you say, well, what is a Baptist Association? Well, you've got counties, you've got states, and you've got a federal, you got a county government, a state government, a federal government. Well, in the Southern Baptist world, you've got the national convention, the state conventions, and you've got the local association. And we're part of an association with about 200 other churches in, uh, in uh, the greater Austin area. And his, uh, what David felt like the Lord impressed on his heart for the association this year is that we as an association adopt, that we make sure there's 11 in the geographical uh, um, confines, I'm blanking out on the right word here, but inside of the geography of our association, there are 11 universities or colleges and uh, he really felt like the Lord impressed him that we need to have, as an association, every one of those college, universities and colleges need to be adopted and be persistently and consistently prayed for by our churches. And so in effort to do that, he took each one of those campuses and uh, asked, uh, just sought the Lord, who, who there needed to be at least be a point church within the association to lead the charge for prayer. Of course, he has asked, I've shared that with y'all, he asked us to adopt the University of Texas. And this week, uh, normally we would have had our association meeting, so what he asked us to do is in lieu of meeting as an association, that we would go and have a prayer walk at some point during the week at our, the campuses, you know, for us as the point church that we've been asked to adopt any of the others. So uh, we went down today, and every, every Wednesday at noon, the Longhorn BSM does a lunch that's open for any students to come in, and they do it around tables. They've got some questions that range from what major are you in to uh, why do you believe people follow Jesus, some questions to kind of open some gospel conversations, uh, a lot of packed house. Uh, I will say this for all who like the A&M and Longhorn rivalry, the Longhorn BSM is a way swankier building because it is very new. In fact, Cody said they got a really sweet deal a couple years ago. Cody said we'll probably have the nicest BSM in the country because of how it worked out. But um, I guess when your old building is really uh, falling apart, but it's prime real estate in Austin, they'll give you a lot of money for it, and that'll let you afford to have a really cool place for your BSM subsequent. Um, but uh, we, we got to do, after that, we went down there, uh, got to meet with students, met with several other churches, and then we went out and we walked, uh, walked a good chunk of campus and, and chose some particular spots that we prayed for. Uh, normally, I'd say we're going to pray for that now, but that's what so we're going to do it tomorrow night with the Collegiate Day of Prayer, the National Collegiate Day of Prayer that we're going to meet here at 7 o'clock tomorrow night and pray as there are churches gathered and ministries gathered all throughout the country praying at the same time. Um, so we will do that tomorrow night specifically for UT. But here's, here's, uh, here's what I want to do for tonight as far as our prayer point before we dive in. Uh, Paul writes this in the letter to the Colossians. He says, Devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. So one, that God would open up a door. Two, that I may make it, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to. To speak, that Paul would know how to speak and how to speak clearly 
as those doors open. So here's what I'd like to do just for a few moments. If you would have uh, uh, one person at your table who would be willing to pray aloud, and I just want us to pray for our family in Christ, our church family here, First Baptist Pflugerville, that God would open doors to us, both as a church congregationally, but as individuals, and that God would fill us with knowing how to speak the gospel clearly in the way that we ought to speak. Um, and then uh, so if one person will pray and the others, you can join in with your affirming mms or amens or, or pray it, pray it, pastor, whatever you want to throw in there in affirmation, but you would join in one spirit uh, with the person who's praying. And then I will, I will pray for us and we will dive into the backside of Paul's uh, life here as we continue walking through the New Testament. So uh, pray and I'll, I'll pray us back over to the word here in a moment. Father, 
Please hear our cries. And please rend the heavens and come down. Rend the heavens and come down in our community. Open doors with our neighbors. Open doors with our uh, co-workers. Open doors with our you know, people working on the machine next to us in the gym. The, the people checking out next, next in the aisle in the grocery store. Lord, I, I don't know what other terms to throw in, but open doors. And fill us with the boldness and clarity to speak your word, your gospel, in the way that we ought. Jesus, bless this time now. Open our eyes. Find our hearts willing to receive whatever you say as you say it, even if it means that we've got to allow your word to change how we think on something. Because Jesus, you are far more worthy than our will and our way. It's to you we look, and it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Uh, by the way, just in preparation for tomorrow night, uh, they, the BSM did a survey. I'm going to get our right map up. The BSM did a survey a couple years back, and, and in this survey, they concluded that probably roughly around 9% of students at the University of Texas uh, would, would be confessing Christians, mean they, they say they're a Christian, and, and the reason they say they're a Christian would match up biblically with what ought to be said. Now, that, obviously, we don't know the fruit of each one of their lives and what's... But, a confessing Christian. That means that about 10,000 students at the University of Texas know Jesus Christ personally, which means inversely that there are about 44,000 students at the University of Texas that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which would make the amount of lost students at the University of Texas the third largest university in the state. So please be here tomorrow night to petition the Lord and pray. Cody Schaus, the BSM director, will actually be here. Part of what we're going to do tomorrow night is allow him to share a little testimony of just what he sees God doing on campus, where they praises things that, that we should rejoice over, but also opposition, and we're going to pray, uh, pray over him. But anyways, all right. Paul. Now, where we left off last week uh, with Paul, we left off right after the second missionary journey. Uh, this is the map up here. The second missionary journey starts out in Antioch. Of course, it begins tensely. Paul and Barnabas separate their uh, ministry partnership. And, and again, uh, we got to be careful to not over-assume into the emotions of Scripture. At the same time, we also understand that every person we read in Scripture is a real human uh, who's, who's, who's no different, humanly speaking, than us. Um, Paul and Barnabas were ministry partners for, for probably, uh, if you try to add it all up, two decades. There's 20 years of ministry between the two of them. Can you imagine the, the hardness of, ha of, 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 of emotionally of that separation? Uh, it, would be, it would be massive. But Paul and Silas, they're going to backtrack through the areas of the first missionary journey. Remember, they're going to want to go over here into Asia. And specifically, the Holy Spirit says no. That's not where you're to go. They end up coming over here to Troas. They go across into Europe. Uh, of course, this is where the Philippi, the church in Philippi, we see the Bereans, uh, Thessalonica, 
Uh, they get down to Athens, to Corinth, over back to Ephesus, uh, so many of the, the churches that we know because of the letters written to them. And it's during this second missionary journey that three of Paul's letters are written. Galatians, we finished there last week. Galatians, written to the churches here, uh, likely in the southern region of Galatia. Uh, he also writes First and Second Thessalonians. Now, just real quick, um, I'm, I'm, when, I, when I give you a, a brief overview and in these books, I'm really going to keep it brief uh, for a variety of reasons. We'll just leave it there, but keep it brief. But I want to give you at least some highlights of, of what, you, what you know. First and Second Thessalonians, written to the church in Thessalonica, <clears throat> which is up uh, right here, right on that little highest inlet of that uh, cove there, uh, seaport, great wealth, the, the Ignatian Way, which was a major thoroughfare that crossed the length of the empire, passed through it. Uh, it was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was likely about 200,000 people. This was a big city uh, back in Paul's day. Uh, there's intense persecution. We know that Paul stayed there at least three weeks, but we don't totally know if it was only three weeks or several months. Uh, who wrote the, the letters? Well, Paul wrote it. He wrote it sometime, both of the letters sometime during the 18 months that he was ministering during this journey down in Corinth. Uh, he wrote them. Uh, it's, it's very likely in there. Uh, if, you, if you read both letters back to back, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and a, and a couple months passed, and then he wrote 2 Thessalonians, and he wrote them to these new believers. Uh, he writes to them, uh, both letters are written to encourage the believers as they face an intense persecution. He writes to respond to criticism about his motives uh, by how he conducted ministry, meaning he, he uh, did not allow the, the Thessalonians to support him um, financially, but he set an example for them in working and tent making and providing his own way. Uh, he wrote to give them an understanding of sexual ethics. You find some things he wrote them that, that unpack on the end times and how to grieve with hope and the return of Christ. They are a wonderful letters. There's a lot that is there. there there's some uh, major truths and, and there's some hard truths in there. That's where Paul writes and says, if anybody who claims to be a Christian and is able to work refuses to work, they should be regarded as worse shape than someone who doesn't know Christ. And they should be allowed to starve. If they can work and they refuse to work, they, they, you're not going to give them anything. You're going to let them deal with that. There's a clear concern uh, that, that we as believers are not marked by laziness, but by hard work. So there's a lot that's in there in the, in the, the letters to the Thessalonians, but we're going to keep moving forward here into Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, Paul's going to come back from here. He's going to end up down in Jerusalem, and then he'll make his way back up into Antioch. And we pick up the third missionary journey there in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, he's going to end up in verse 23. Uh, in verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and he went down to uh, Antioch. Um, and so this map's a little different. This map has, uh, has him going to Jerusalem. This is part of some of the timeline of his life that's debated. Did he do this first or before this journey or after this journey? Uh, we're taking it. He did it after. So he goes back up here to Antioch and thus ends the second missionary journey. Uh, his third missionary journey is going to start. It says in verse 23, after having spent some time there, he left and passed successively, successfully uh, through the We'll come back to that here in a second. Goodness. 
uh, passed through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, and here's where Apollos comes in. If you think about the letters to the Corinthians, some say I'm of Peter, some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos. Well, here's where we meet Apollos. Uh, an Alexandrian by birth, so he's from Africa, from Northern Africa, the city of Alexandria. An eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. And this is where he's going to connect with Priscilla and Aquila, a uh, husband and wife couple, and they're going to disciple him further. And so you're going to have now the third, the, the third missionary journey, which you've had summarized in verse 23. He made his way through Galatia, and he ends up over here in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. So let me go back here. city of Ephesus is a major city. Uh, here's kind of a, a large view of the day of Paul. You've got this uh, major thoroughfare to the sea. You've got uh, the, uh, the amphitheater. Uh, the temple of Artemis is located on the outskirts, the outskirts of town. This was a major uh, source of temple prostitution and things that Paul would address. You can see how big it is, by the way. That box is the size of an American football field. That, that is the size of the temple. So that gives you an idea of the temple grounds, and you can kind of see uh, where the columns are here. Those start right there, give you an idea of what was there. Here is the uh, Roman amphitheater. That's a picture in, in modern day. It's massive. Uh, and this is going to be in this Roman theater where Paul is actually drugged before them and he's attacked by wild dogs and there's going to be a rough time here. All of this is, in, uh, is in, uh, in Ephesus where Paul will wind up. Uh, you see there in chapter 19, it's going to really chronicle happen that while Apollos was at Corinth. Chapter 19, verse 1, so well, had the Corinthians meet Apollos? Well, there you go. Apollos has gone on to Corinth. Paul passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus, found some disciples. And so he begins a ministry there in Ephesus. You're going to see miracles that take place in Ephesus. Uh, you're going to find uh, in this, Paul and the preaching of the gospel disrupts the economic trade based on pagan idols because people are not buying the idols anymore. And uh, there's going to be persecution that breaks out. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for disciples, chapter 20, and he exhorted them. He took his leave. He left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. So Paul's going to, when he say Macedonia, he's going to move his way uh, up here. And he's going to come. Here's Macedonia, this whole region. And he's going to get down here into, uh, into Greece, down into those areas. And so chapter 20 is, is chronicling uh, those things as he's down there. It says on the, uh, look at verse uh, chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 20, verse 6. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. So they've come over here and then they're going to, they've come down through here. They're going to come over to back to Troas on the way back. And, uh, says, we came to Troas on the first day of the week when we were together to break bread. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight, meaning his teaching, his preaching. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And Paul kept on talking. He was as Paul kept on talking, uh, he was overcome by sleep, and he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. 
Paul went down, embraced him, fell upon him, and after embracing said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked to them long until daybreak and then left. So uh, they took the boy, away the boy alive, and they were greatly comforted. So I just point that out to say, um, Paul taught for a really long time. A young man fell asleep, just like some of you do in church, <laughs> just like I would if I was in your place in church. It's why God made me a pastor, because it's the only way I was ever going to hear a sermon, because I can't stay awake to save my life sitting in a chair listening. Um, but here's the difference. If you fall out of your chair and die, I am not promising that I have the ability to come down out of the pulpit and bring you back to life. Uh, I'll pray for you to come back to life, but I, I, that's going to have to be the Lord's handling there. Uh, but it is interesting of note of just this. There, I, I remember distinctly, and this does speak. Now, don't misunderstand me here. What I'm about to say is not me trying to justify um, preaching a long time or, or routinely going over. I do try to be mindful of the clock. Sometimes I get carried away, but I promise I do. You don't understand how much that clock weighs in my mind, sometimes more than it should. But I do want to say something about just how we're wired as Americans in our culture. We are a culture that does live and move and breathe by the clock. In fact, if you've ever gotten to know somebody of a South American culture, you will, if you've gotten to know them very well, you've probably gotten frustrated when they always show up 15, 20, 30 minutes late to dinner, unbothered and thinking they haven't done anything wrong. Because in their culture, to show up an hour late, not, their cultures have different relationships to time. And that even comes to how, you know, here's the reality. Sometimes in American church, we say, okay, well, part of the reason you come to church, part of it is part of what my job, according to the scriptures as pastor, is to disciple you. It's to equip you to know, love, and follow Jesus and to go out and live out that life following Jesus where you're making an impact for eternity in the world. I'll just be honest with you. Over uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s, early 2000s, we have tried to package that in as little time as possible. And there's some things biblically you just can't pack into 20-minute devotionals. Now, let me contrast this with you. I'll never forget, um, uh, years ago, David Platt's gone on to be a big name and done all this stuff and that, but years ago, he was pastoring a church in Alabama. And uh, he started a thing he called Secret Church. It's a six-hour Bible study. In fact, they're about to have the, this year's Secret Church coming up in April. And I got the privilege when I was in college, he had just started this. He did it with us in, at Glorieta, New Mexico, National Collegiate Week. And so we came in at six o'clock, and there was a song or two of worship sprinkled here or there, but we spent six hours and walked through the whole doctrine of God and had a book and everything, and we wrote it all in. Where it hit him, where this, and, and, and back then especially, at the secret church now, especially among probably uh, younger people, is, is, is more well known. But back, it's crazy. Back in, back in the late 2000s to do a six-hour Bible study, who wants to show up for that? Well, here's where it, here's where it came. I'll never forget him sharing this story. He was in, uh, he was in an East, a, a very large, very in-the-news East Asian country right now where Christianity, true Christianity, is illegal meeting with the underground church. And they said, Pastor David, and again, these are believers who've never had the opportunity to go to real seminary. These are believers who've had pastors arrested who've said, Pastor David, you're here. Teach us. We would like you to teach us the Old Testament. We don't understand so much. 
So I just remember him sharing. He said, so I did what any good American pastor would do. I thought through, okay, I'm going to teach for, I'll teach for about 45 minutes of this. We'll have some discussion questions. They can break out. And he had this whole plan. And he said it, he said, okay, here's what we'll do. And they said, no, Pastor David, that's a horrible plan. We are risking our lives to come together to meet. You will teach us everything you can teach us for as long as you can teach us. And we'll get together in groups and discuss it when you're gone and not here. So he proceeded for the next 12 hours to walk them through the Old Testament with not one of them dropping an eye, desperate longing and hungry to know and understand the word of their God. And then they turned and said, that was wonderful, Pastor David. Can you meet us again tonight at six and take us through the New Testament? That is the heart of our persecuted brothers and sisters who are desperate for the word of God. And while I'm not advocating that I should be allowed every week to preach an hour and not be aware of stuff, I am advocating that as Americans, when we try to rule the church and God's word by the clock, there is something disgraceful about that compared to our brothers and sisters who just want him and his word. So sometimes we need to just be aware of where our culture has given us blind spots as believers. And again, don't mishear me. I'm not trying to use that to go, get ready Sunday. You're not getting out of here till one o'clock. But on the flip side, wouldn't it be amazing if the Holy Spirit moved through the room Sunday and nobody wanted to leave and we were here till two o'clock just walking through the word of God and praising and praying? Just a thing to offer based on what you see there. Uh, here's, here's what you need to understand. Paul starts this missionary journey uh, there at chapter 18, verse 23. By the time you get to chapter 20, verse 17, Paul has gone all the way through all of this back around, and he is on his way from uh, Miletus uh, over, uh, over to, uh, he's going to stop back through Ephesus. I don't know why this map is somewhat off. It's because this map is not the inspired word of God. It's just a map someone put together and forgot to draw an arrow to. But he's going to go through all of these places. He's, this, this missionary journey is a minimum of three and a half years. It may be as long as five years. So chapter 18, verse 23, to the end of chapter 20, that, if you read through it, it doesn't read like it took very long. It sounds like he took a really good two-week road trip. No, it took three and a half to five years. He's going to spend long periods of time, to over 2,700 miles that he's going to take place. And in this time, he's going to spend at least three years on the front side ministering in the city of Ephesus. He's going to have a long-standing, sitting ministry there. He's going to come back through on his way back, and he's going to stop in Ephesus. And this is what you're going to see in chapter 20, uh, verse, verse 17. When, when from Miletus, he came to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church, meaning the pastors. And when they had came to them, he said to them, and he proceeds, and I'm just going to summarize a little bit of it for you but, and read one specific part. He proceeds to tell them, look, ultimately, I'm on my way back to Jerusalem, and I know because the Holy Spirit has told me, if I go back to Jerusalem, imprisonment awaits me. And I'm, I'm going. And this may be the last time we see each other. And so he charges them. And I want you to look what he, uh, what he says. He says, but I do not consider my life, verse 24, of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. 
And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He says, I'm not gonna get before the Lord with blood on my hands because I I shrank away like a coward from telling men and women how to get saved. This is what he says, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which you didn't pick, but the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. He has made you bishops. That's where that word bishop is is a transliteration of the Greek word. Overseers, rulers, to pastor, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering the night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. And he he goes on from there. He says, you need to understand, I have labored faithfully among you, and now you're not going to see me anymore. And you need to understand, the Holy Spirit called you and set you apart in this role in this role, you lead, you rule, you're, you, you, you're, you're the overseers. You're the overseers to shepherd, to care, to tend, to protect. And you are before God charged to protect the sheep from wolves who would come in, even from among yourselves and wreak havoc. Now I get super worked up and I'm not gonna, the application here probably is more for me and the pastors than anything, but understand that part of what our role to, is with you as a flock is to protect you. It is to protect you from false teachers. It's to protect you from false teachers inside our own church when those arise. It's to protect you from false teachers who have massive platforms in our society, who preach a gospel that sounds 80% true, but is 20% a lie and therefore all wrong. It is not, our charge is not to make you feel good. Our charge is to care for you, to know and love Jesus Christ. And if we're all walking in the spirit, most of the time it probably ought to feel good in here. It won't feel good out there in the world. But it is a charge that we are called to take very seriously, which on the flip side is then the writer of Hebrews tells them, hey, the, the, basically make it a blessing for the pastors to shepherd you. Um, I share this more in passion because I have watched churches where the pastors have been more concerned about keeping the peace than they have about protecting the flock. And so I just want to say to you before God, I commit and recommit daily to protect you by His grace And I am sorry when that means sometimes we may have to say no to something. But sorry, not sorry, because I want us to be protected from the subtle dangers that are in our society especially, because the difference between our society and their society is Christianity was new in their society. It's not new in ours. It's old, which means there's a lot of false truth 
masquerading around. That is really, really sneaky. I also say this to say, please, we as pastors covet your prayer that we would never not respond with the grace and boldness of Christ. So he goes back through, and then I love this. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud. You see the kind of deep and intimate and personal. You don't get together with people and start praying and weeping with each other if there is not an affection and a love and a care and concern for each other. That is, that is, that is un- unparalleled in terms of what you see in the world. And that kind of love and affection where you see them praying, that's the biblical, that's, that's probably a better example biblically of, of what fellowship is. The way that we have this common bond that unites us together and we care and we love and we encourage and we see each other as each, um, it's my, it, it, we, we as Christians see each other, especially in the context of the local churches, you're, you're my responsibility to love, to encourage, to pray for, to, and there, there ought to be that, and you see that there. Paul will set sail from Miletus. He will part, go back. Ultimately, he's going to get down to Jerusalem, and thus ends the third missionary journey when he gets down here to Jerusalem. Now, just real briefly here, it's going to be during this time that, uh, that he will write First and Second Corinthians, the letters to the Corinthians. Now, on a little trivia for you, we actually know from 1st and 2nd Corinthians that really 1st and 2nd Corinthians are actually 2nd and 4th Corinthians. Because there was a first letter that we don't have, it's not in the canon of Scripture, that he originally wrote, then there was a response, and, and then he wrote, he wrote the second letter, which for us is 1st Corinthians. Then there was a painful letter he had to write that he mentions in 2 Corinthians, a, a third letter that we don't know about. We just know it was apparently pretty tough and painful and really calling them out on their sin. And then came uh, what we know as 2 Corinthians, which would have been the fourth letter that he wrote. Uh, there is, uh, the, 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 Corinth, of course, was a, um, was a massive city. It, it was located on this peninsula it was a major, they would literally roll ships on logs across the peninsula in lieu of a canal. Uh, it was a major, it was a major a game center, a, a economic center known for having athletic games. It was a unbelievable sexually immoral city. In fact, there was a term to be a, to be a Corinthian said something about your level of sexual perversion Paganism was in the extreme. Uh, this is where Paul in the city is where he meets Priscilla and Aquila. He's going uh, to have spent, of course, on the previous missionary journey, 18 months there. Uh, these are written. There's so, on one hand, there are some hard truths uh, in the letters to Corinth. There are some things that, if we're honest, expose sin in our own hearts. When we like to play favorites, I'm of, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of, well... We don't maybe do that, but um, I'm of this pastor. I'm of that pastor. I follow this person. Oh, I, I, I'm of the Gaithers. Oh, I'm of the I'm of the Chris Tomlins. Oh, I'm of the Phil Wickhams. Oh, I'm of uh, my music style. We do this kind of stuff all the time. 
Paul calls it out in there. There's some incredible passages in there, passages about the love of Christ constrains us or passages where he writes to them and says, uh, you feel underqualified and overwhelmed by the job? Absolutely, because God didn't pick the strong to shame the strong. He picked the weak to shame the strong. There is so much that is in there. uh, And I am trying to to pace here and I'll point, you can go read it, but I would encourage you as well. Second Corinthians, part of what Paul has to deal with uh, is he has to deal with some, what he, he, he jokingly, sarcastically calls them the super apostles who've come in, who are eloquent of speech, who have these glowing and glamorous ministries. And oh, that Paul, he's, he's weak, he's feeble. I think we oftentimes have a poor view of Paul. We, th- we think Paul was like what the super apostles were like. Paul was absolutely brilliant. He was dedicated and hardworking, but Paul seems to describe himself not as being eloquent. So these, these people come in and Paul's defending and he, and he basically, he gets there in, 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 uh, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He goes, okay, you want to talk about following Jesus? You want to stack resumes of who's got the better resume of following Jesus? Let's go there. Let's go with how do you know that the hand of God is on my life? Let's go there. He says, but in whatever respect any, anyone else is bold, I, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Let's go there. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonment, beaten so many times, I don't know the number, often in danger of death, Five times I received the Jews' 39 lashes. That would take that cat of nine tails that's designed nine leather strips with shards of pottery metal, things to rip the skin off on the end. You would be whipped with it 39 times, according to Jewish. Five times Paul endured it. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and we know that time that he was stoned so hard they thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked, and this hasn't even gotten to the shipwreck that happens here on his way over to Rome. A night and day I have, been, I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. You want to go there and talk about what it means to follow Jesus faithfully? You put up your pretty little ministry. And look how I have suffered for being faithful to Christ. And there is a truth there for us because there is something uniquely, I think, Western and maybe even American that, and, I, and I'm not anywhere exempt from this, that man that if, no, it's not the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but man, if we're really being faithful in ministry, then 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 always revival, always growth, always. Yet Paul's life seems to be, I've been faithful. Has there been growth? Yes, but it hadn't been without suffering. And then he makes this comment. And apart from these external things, there is a daily pressure in my spirit of concern for the church. 
that the churches actually know the real risen Lord Jesus Christ and actually follow him with a heart filled with love and surrender and faithfulness. The creators to the Corinthians, some of my favorite passage, I was asked one time if I could only ever preach one sermon, what passage would I preach? I was kind of, I didn't know that question was coming. And I just said, you know, if I could probably preach any passage just one last time, I'd probably take 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, or chapter 5, verse 14 through the end, where it says, for the love of Christ poured out on the cross is what's implied there. The love of Christ constrains my life. It's like a pressure on both sides that forces me to go in only one direction, which means if you really understand the love of Jesus, it doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. Oh, yay, the love of Jesus, I feel so good. No, the love of Jesus means my life is directed with purpose and direction and conviction the more you understand the depth of the love of Christ. It's where he talks about that we are ambassadors. He mentions, of course, all the major passages on the generosity, the fact that we as a church uh, are called to be faithful, to steward, yes, our finances, to give generously to our church, to give generously beyond our church. Those are there in the letters to the Corinthians. There is so much there. And by the way, that passage about all of that Paul has suffered, that builds up to Paul's great statement I was caught up in a vision to heaven and there was given to me a thorn in the flesh of Satan that I wanted, I asked God three times to take away, praying in righteousness, the prayer of faith, go back to James, yet God's response was not be healed. God's response was no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. And I can just imagine whatever that was, I can imagine Paul going, God, if you would just take this away, I could be so much more effective. I could get so many more cities. I could move so much more quickly. I could spend more time with people. I could, because likely we seem, we don't know exactly what it was, but it seems strongly it was some kind of physical impairment. And I can just see Paul reasoning like many of us, God, if you would just you would just make me healthy again, if you would just make me strong again, if you would just, then I could be so much more. And God says, no, absolutely not. My grace is enough. The fact that I work not in light of how great and awesome you are, but in how great and awesome I am and my power, you want my power to overflow in your life, then get well content. And Paul says, oh, I will boast about my weaknesses for when I am weak, then he is strong. There's so much in the letters to Corinth. It's also in this time that Paul is going to write the letter to the Romans. Uh, now, there's a little debate. Some would say maybe it was a little later, but it's also in this time likely he's going to write the letter to the Roman church. What's interesting about the letter to the Romans uh, is he's not been to Rome. He doesn't know these people personally, but he's heard of their faith. And he writes, if you read that first chapter, he longs to get there. He longs to get to Rome. He tells them, my, my hope is to come to come to you, to have a ministry among you. And Romans, we all know Romans is this. If you If you listen to to church folk or, or pastors, we like to always drop these little seminary things that probably aren't always helpful, and we'll say, oh, Romans, it's this dense theology book. And I mean, it is, but I think we can so overharp that that we scare everybody out of reading it. When here's what Romans really is. Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He makes this statement. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the message that Jesus, that we're sinners created in the image of God, but outside of relationship, our sin is what has put us in that rebellion. God has sent his one and only unique son out of love to come to live the life we failed to, to die the death that we deserve, to take, to become our sin on the cross. 
He rose from the grave and he offers complete and total forgiveness, salvation and reconciliation to God, the relationship we were made for by his grace. And we receive it through an act of faith, which is expressed in repentance. That's the gospel. He came, he lived, he died, he rose and he's coming back. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the gospel that is the power to save and reconcile men and women to, to, to the God. And then the rest of the book is a defense of the gospel, which is by grace through faith. And when you start to read it like that, you can recognize as he walks through it, he's going to unpack. This is what we are before Christ. This is what Christ has done. This is how a person is saved. Okay, that's great, Paul. But if you're saying it's by faith, what about all that Old Testament stuff where there's works? Ah, well, you're mistaken. It wasn't always about works because Abraham was justified by faith. Chapter four. Okay, well, chapter five, and, and he goes on and, okay, well, here's what this means. It means that there's a complete and total identification. By the way, in the book of Romans, you get through the first six chapters without a single command which tells you and I, there's a lot of stuff that we need to understand what we actually believe before we can really start to do anything with it. But oftentimes we just, just tell me what I need to do. Well, you and I do need to do things, but that doing better flow out of grace, by grace through faith and not be what it so easily becomes, we're doing things and thinking that doing things is going to merit us that relationship. There's tons that's in there, of course. Romans chapter one starts out with a powerful statement about the lostness that, that God has created all of creation. And in creation, there are, you can see truth about God in creation. We would call that intelligent design. But here's what it also says. It says, for the, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through that through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and in their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man, birds, falling, falling creatures. And if you back up to the beginning, it says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Here's what that tells you. Sometimes, sometimes we make these statements as believers. I just don't get why the lost world doesn't see this. You want to know why the lost world doesn't see it? They do see it. But their own sinful rebellion in their hearts actively suppresses what should be painfully and is painfully obvious. That's what it says. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's why I said a couple weeks ago, it's a miracle any one of us has ever been saved because we were once the same lost people who suppressed the truth in our own unrighteousness. And somehow the Lord broke through in our lives. And when we cried out and said, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. I need you to save me, not just to be my savior, but because you are Lord and King and I need, I, I, I need to honor, I, honor your rule and reign. I need to be in relationship with you. And he goes on and he, and he, and he describes this. And, and of course, here's, and here's what's here. For this reason, listen to it. For this reason, God gave them over their degrading passage. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another, men with men con committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, here's the reality. We live in a day and age where I know 
many churches that you would not instantly look at and go, That's, that is a out there progressive liberal church, but who are actively saying that homosexuality, and what I mean by that is the committed harboring of that desire, which leads to then the acting out of that desire in mind and body is not a sin. There is no possible way. I'm writing it to you in the English. I can pull out my Greek and read it to you in the Greek and translate it. There is no possible way to read that passage and it not mean that men should long for women sexually and they, they chose to give that up and long for men and women vice versa. So God handed them over. Now I realize in saying that, that is not popular in our culture and even in our church culture. But it is clearly what he says. Well, why does Paul highlight it there? Because sometimes if we've been in a danger in the church at times, maybe we've heightened that as like, well, don't be a sinner. Don't be that kind of sinner. I don't know, because listen, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to those things which are not proper. They were filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. He doesn't name homosexuality because it's the worst of all sins because he throws disobedient in parents as equal. So let's be clear. Homosexuality and the various forms of sexual perversion we see today are sin. Let's also be clear. They are no more sin than all the other things that God says are sin. And maybe we need to increase in realizing gossip is just as sinful as sexual immorality. Why does he highlight it here? Because it is an example of this, in our sinfulness, we have so denied the design of God that is so blatantly obvious in how he has created things that Paul, Paul is trying to demonstrate that there is no level in our lostness and sinfulness to which we will not go to deny God's order, character, and person. And that's what all sin is. It's a perversion of God's order, his character, his way. It's set against him. So having said all that, let's be clear. We need to be clear on what sin is. We also need to be clear that we do not hate sinners. We love sinners. We do care for sinners. In love, we must speak the truth graciously. And I understand today that it's sometimes hard to be gracious as we feel a little bit of angst towards what we believe ramp up, but we don't retaliate cheek for cheek. You want to punch me in the cheek? Jesus says, I got to turn and let you punch the other one too. Instead, we follow the example of a Savior who hanging on a cross, buddy, battered, beaten beyond recognition, according to Isaiah 52, looked out on the very people who put him there spitting on him, cursing him, and said what? Father, forgive them, release them of the debt on them, hold this not against them because they don't have a clue what they're actually really doing. Our job is to uphold 
the holy righteousness of God and what he says in his word is holy versus what he says in his word is sin. We want to be clear on it and we want to be clear on it with grace, compassion, and truth. And sometimes we either are seemingly gracious and compassionate but not clear on it or sometimes we're really, really clear on it but there's no gracious and compassion in us. And neither one of those are how God expects us to walk. Romans is a powerful book. It's not just that. He goes on. Uh, there, Romans is wonderful. He'll spend the first 11 chapters basically defending the gospels. The gospel's this. Okay, well, what about this? Okay, well, what about this? Okay, well, what about the law? Okay, well, what about life in the Spirit? Okay, well, what about if, if God's God, if it was always this gospel, what about Israel? None of them follow God. When he gets to chapter 12 and he says, therefore, I urge you, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where he goes. In light of all of this truth of what the gospel is, now therefore, this is what life needs to look like. And of course, chapter 12 is, uh, is powerful. He Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, be faithful with your spiritual gifts. Uh, we're one body, many members. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Don't be haughty in mind. Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't rape pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Don't take your revenge. Do not overcome. I mean, all of this is what does it mean to really embrace and believe in the gospel and to be saved by the gospel? It means lives that are transformed to look like that. A life where I'm not the most important person in it. Where I would willingly give up my preferences and my things for another. Where I won't retaliate against those who come after, but I will demonstrate to them the grace of God. A life, chapter 13, where we're subject to the government so much as it doesn't cause us to do something unholy, even if that means there's some things we don't like. Don't miss, I don't mean by don't like something that's morally wrong. I don't like my taxes. But I have to render Caesar what is Caesar's. Anyways, Romans is, is it powerful. Uh, there's so much that's there. He writes it there. He longs to get to them. And of course, he makes this little statement towards the end of Romans where he says that he really longs to get where nobody's gotten to, which is Spain. Now, I say that as the little cliffhanger hook for next week. So, uh, church family, appreciate you being here tonight. Uh, all we covered was his third missionary journey. Praise God, next week's coming. And uh, we, will, we will walk through the rest of his life in the New Testament here next week. And I know some of you have asked, we're getting ever closer. We're getting ever closer. We're going to have to look at a little bit of revelation. And we'll have a good time when we get there and do that. So, thank you for being here, church family. Let me pray us out. Father, thank you for your word. We want to be clear what it says. God, we want to be known by this world. There, this world will never accept us because it doesn't accept you. We're grateful, God, that you have rescued us out of it. You've left us here to be ambassadors. And so, Father, the world 
there's nothing going to change the world hating us. Because the world hates you. But I do pray that we would be hated by the world, but known for looking like Romans 12. That we would stand clearly where you stand, that we would speak your truth with clarity, not with ambiguity, that we would stand clearly where you stand. If you leave something uh, somewhat gray, where you don't answer every question, that we don't go into false speculations, but when you say, thus saith the Lord, this is right, or this is wrong, or this is holy, or this is sin, that we would be clear in a world that is trying to, to uh, twist, and, and not just a world, but an enemy who loves to take your word and twist it into a lie to bring destruction and devastation. God, we want to be clear, and we want to be clear speaking the truth in love giving an answer for our hope with all gentleness and patience. Willing to turn the other cheek, not repaying evil for evil, but allowing you to deal with vengeance and justice. Thank you for our church family, Lord. Thank you for your unity and fellowship. May you continue to unite us. May you open doors. May you fashion in our hearts a love for you. And not a love for you as we think you are, but a love for you as you actually are and you say you are in your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.